All right, so we're going through um, Genesis, obviously. Um, We've been through the first couple of chapters, and what we've seen in chapters one and two is just this stunning picture, all right? So Genesis one, you have the triune God who speaks the world into existence that we see that we're created in his image, that we are to bear his image before a watching world, and he declares over all of his creation that it's good. And then Genesis chapter 2, it picks up with the creation account again, but we get Adam's viewpoint of the whole entire creation. And so we get to see the inner workings of his relationship with God, how he is to show dominion over all that God has created. We see that God creates a woman for him, a suitable helper, a person that he can partner with in life, and that. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, we just get this beautiful picture of what the relationship looks like. And we just get this stunning picture of what life was like before Genesis chapter 3 hits. So imagine this reality with me, all right? So you have a whole world that's got, that God has created with beauty and wildlife and significance that man has the opportunity to explore and enjoy, all right? And so as they're going out and they're experiencing the beauties and the pleasures of this, I mean, it, here's, you need to use like a childlike imagination for what is happening in Genesis 1 and 2. So, I mean, it can be like Adam and Eve were out and they're riding the lions one evening and like they come back home and there's this beautiful, spectacular garden that God has uniquely designed for them, and so their daily rhythm is they get to enjoy the delicacies of this beautiful, extravagant garden. I'm, fe- I'm I, when I think about this, I think about these massive waterfalls, high mountains, beautiful, luscious trees, great fruit. They get to go grab the strawberries, eat it, and it's like dripping down their face. And Adam gets to do this with his best friend, like the most trustworthy and transparent relationship that you could ever fathom in this entire life. That's what he has with Eve. And as the day winds down, as the sun begins to set, God comes into the garden and the unique rhythm that they have every single night is that they go out for a walk together under the silver moon. And so what the Bible tells us is that there's not yet rain and so there's water and there's mist that comes up from the ground And so as they're going out and they're walking with God physically in the garden, they have the luscious green grass that the dew's coming up and it's underneath their feet. They're walking through and they're sharing just the joys of the day that they had. We do these highs and lows in our house. There's no lows, all right? When, we, when our boys even come and say, hey, give us, if there's no lows for your day, give us the highest, the lowest high that you have. There's no low high. They're all like, to the roof. You know what I'm saying? Like they're all extravagant. They're all great. And so they could just share these joys with God as they're going out for a walk with him. And then after they're done, they come back and they lie down and they get the most restful sleep that you could possibly imagine. I mean, all parents, your mind is going straight towards this. Can I get an amen? Right? The most beautiful rest that you could possibly imagine. That's What's before us in Genesis 1 and 2? The word used to describe the state is the Hebrew word shalom. And it means universal flourishing and wholeness 
in delight. There's this philosopher, Christian philosopher, Cornelius Plantinga, which is, what a name, amen? Here's what he says. He says, shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And that's what the experience is in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, here's the problem. This isn't our experience in this world, is it? If you've lived in this world for just a smidge, I mean, even if you're just kind of beginning to embark, like you're, you're going into college, you're graduated, you're going into college, like you've had experiences that show you that this world is jacked up, right? Now, I don't know when it was that I first realized that our world was broken, but I do remember the time when I was convinced of it, all right? So I was in fourth grade. I'm nine years old. It's 1995. If that dates me, so be it. I'm living in Oklahoma, and there's this tragedy that happens in our state that if you're from Oklahoma, you never forget, and it's the bombing of the Murrah building. It's the deadliest act of a homegrown terrorism that's ever happened in the United States. It happened on a Wednesday, and so literally for over half a week, I mean, all, there's no studying, there's no teaching that happens. We just have the TV on and we have to stare at the face of reality of darkness and wickedness for a nine-year-old for over half a week. There's just etched in my mind. I, I, I was nine. I don't know how to process like my emotions or what I'm feeling, but I do remember this subtle feeling that just came over me of like, I don't think I'm safe here. And I'm not, I'm not talking about my school. I'm just talking about this world. Because there's jacked up brokenness all around me. And it's staring at me in front of a screen for over half a week. Now, if this seems like a very intense like, illustration to use, go read Genesis chapter 4 and it doesn't seem far-fetched. You know? What you see there is a picture of First two brothers that have ever been like in this world and the older brother destroys, kills the younger brother over jealousy. So it's not that far-fetched, okay? So you can go check it out. What in the world happened, right? What in the world happened from Genesis 1 and 2 to the world that we experience on a regular basis? Well, the answer is Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we see God give Adam and Eve one command, that they not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we see in verses 16 and 17. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So out of one act of disobedience, we see the shalom of Genesis 1 and 2, the world it is as it is ought to be, it completely unravels here in Genesis chapter 3. And it begins in the seven verses that we're looking at tonight. So here's what I want to do, all right? I want to unpack these seven verses, and you can kind of do it in seven or three different scenes, all right? So here's the three scenes that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the temptation. We're going to look at the act of sin. And then we're going to look at the result. And so we're going to look at them sequentially because each has important implications for us even here today. 
and then we'll end with an application of hope. All right? Sound good? So let's start with the temptation. We see this in verses 1 through 6. I'm going to work through this verse by verse, um, so try to follow along with me if you can. All right? So here's what verse 1 says. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. Now we need to stop here. All right? We need to first note that there really is a Satan, all right? There is a Satan. It's communicated that he is in the form of a serpent here. We know that he's real because it says that the Lord God had made this very serpent. We know that from the rest of the Bible that the serpent is actually the devil, Satan himself. Revelation 12, 9 makes it very specific for us. It says the ancient serpent, referring back to Genesis chapter 3, who's called the devil and Satan, just right there for you, the one who deceives the whole world. So this is Satan himself. It's an actual person. He's real. And Genesis 3 describes Satan as cunning or crafty. And we see this at the height in the way that he distorts God's words as he speaks to Eve. Satan bends God's words, and then as he bends God's words, he begins to instill these lies that we still struggle with today. And the first lie that you see is posed in his question that he says to Eve. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Distorts God's words here. Instills a lie, and here's the lie. God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. Pay attention to a couple of the things that Satan, in Satan's question and the way that he distorts God's words. So he makes a subtle change to what God said. God didn't say that he couldn't, they couldn't eat from any tree. He says you can't eat from uh, a tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil. So he distorts God's words in order to begin to implement this lie into the heart of Eve. And then he focuses, secondly, on God's prohibition and not his provision here. Because what you see in God's command is that he says they are free to eat of any tree in the garden except for one, highlighting his provision for them in every facet of life. But then Satan comes in and he focuses more on the prohibition that God implements the thing that he is saying you cannot partake of. And he does this because he wants to make God and his words both appear harsh and restrictive. Do you see that? So Satan is targeting the goodness of God in the way that he distorts his words. God doesn't really love you, does he? Did he say you can't eat of any tree that's here in the garden? Look how withholding God is from you. Look, he's holding back on you. He's not giving you his best. And in the midst of this, as he's instilling this lie into the, Eve, into the life of Eve, we see that it works. Because here's what Eve's response is in verses two through three. The woman, the woman said to the serpent, you may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So we see that the lie is taking root in the heart of Eve by the response that she gives back to Satan 
himself, she changes God's original command in a couple of ways. The first one is she minimizes God's provision. She says that you may eat freely. She says we may eat while God says you may eat freely. So she's even summing down what God has proposed to them, the lusciousness that God has provided towards them in the garden. She's minimizing that in the way that she responds to the serpent. And then she adds to God's command as well. So Eve says, you must not eat or touch it. God says nothing about touching the tree in his original command. So she's doing the thing that all of us do, which is adding to God's commands. God gives us commands. We have a tendency to add to it that we get really religious sometimes or we get really legalistic about the commands that God gives us. We see that from the very beginning here in Genesis chapter 3 and the root of the lie that Satan has posed that he is, God is withholding from you is there in the very response that Eve gives back to Satan. So we see the first lie is God is holding out on you. But secondly, we see that there's another lie. So this first lie attacks the goodness of God. The second lie attacks God's integrity. All right? If the first lie subtly altered God's word, the second lie outright denies them. Here's what it says in verse four. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Here's the second lie. There's no consequence for disobedience. No consequence for disobedience. See, Satan minimizes the primary concern for the secondary concern here. All right? The relational for the physical. Satan knows the consequences of rebelling against God. He's experienced it, right? Like if you look at the words of Jesus as he's speaking and he's preaching to those that are before him, he says that he saw Satan fall from heaven himself, separation from God. Satan knows what the consequence is if you disobey God, but he minimizes that for the secondary concern, which is actual physical death. And so he downplays this and he highlights that disobedience will not immediately result in their physical death. And then Satan furthers his argument here by using the first lie to justify the second, which you see in verse five. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Essentially, Satan is saying, not only will you not physically die, but look at what it gets you. You get to be God yourself. Here's what's ironic about this, is Adam and Eve are already like God, right? They're created in the Imago Dei. They're created in God's image. They're uniquely created for a relationship with God, and they bear his likeness in this world. It's what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And so what Satan is posing to Eve here is to move from being the image bearer to being the image itself. He's basically saying, sure, you can shine God's glory and majesty to this world as his image bearer, or you can be more. 
You can be the thing that God's holding you back from being, the thing that you are created to be from the very outset of this whole entire world. You can remove yourself from the shackles of what God is holding you back from and finally become who you were meant to be. That's what Satan is posing to Eve here. And if they step into it, it's not that there's going to be a response of uh, God's punishment for their disobedience, but they actually get to step into full enlightenment. Do you see that here? And so look, we all give in to these lies, all right? We, I've stopped here and I paused not to move into the next two verses because this is a, a reality that we all need to wrestle with, which are these two lies. At the root of any sin that we give into in this world are these two lies, that God is holding out on us and that there's no response for our disobedience. Here's what it can look like, all right? So let's just think about relationships, all right? So think about your relationships. You can know what God commands and we can follow Eve's response here and we can distort God's words. So the idea that like we... We see that we all long for relationships. We want relationships. We're hardwired for community. We're hardwired for relationships. And so as we pursue this, and we know God's command that we should not be like unequally yoked, or that we should not be pursuing someone that does not share the same faith in Christ that we share as well. Here's what we do. Well, God says that about marriage, but he doesn't say anything about dating, Right? And so, like, I'm interested in this person, and I can step into this relationship, and I'm just going to do it for the fun of it, but I'm not going to pursue the end goal, which is marriage itself, and so I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy this relationship while I can. And then the root of the lie is that God's holding out on you. Well, the command isn't really what's best for me, and I, I can have fun apart from God's command, and then I can step more fully into it when it's time for me to get more serious. You know what I'm saying? Then once we step into marriage, like continuing down the road of relationships here, oftentimes we have this ideal for what we want our marriage to look like. Man, if once I finally get my spouse, man, we, they're going to be my best friend. We're going to get along all the time. Like, the food that she or he makes in the house is just going to be incredible. Um, they're going to do all my laundry. They're going to they're going to iron all my clothes. Like the house is always going to be immaculate because of the way that they help take care. Like we have these ideals for what marriage is going to look like, and then we get into the actual marriage and we realize, oh crap, I'm jacked up, and so is this other other person that's living under the same roof. They're jacked up too. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. And so here's the lie. If God really loves me, then he wouldn't want me to keep going in this relationship. You know, it's really hard. It's not what I thought it was going to be. God wants me to be happy, and this marriage isn't making me happy. And so, like, I'm going to be okay to bail. I, I know what God says, but ultimately, like, he just wants what's best for me. And the root of the lie seeps in. God's holding out on me if I stay and I follow his command to pursue reconciliation in my relationships. If I follow the commands that he's given me, man, if I get out, there's not going to be any consequence for this in my life because he wants what's best for me. He wants, what's, he wants me to be happy. And so I, I can do whatever I want. 
Look, the result of this, though, is death. It's death. And so we need to stop and we need to recognize what God's communicating to us here in Genesis chapter 3. This isn't a made-up story. This is, like, legit, all right? Jesus, Paul, the apostles, they refer back to this as if it's a real-life occurrence. Adam and Eve, they're not these made-up figures that are just supposed to be the, the poster children for all of humankind. Like, Jesus, Paul, the apostles all refer to Adam and Eve as real people. And so we have to look at this and we have to wrestle with, these are the lies that I struggle with too. And if we want to have any hope at overcoming the, the, the intertwinings of sin in our life, we have to wrestle with these lies that we see from the very beginning. So look, this is the temptation, all right? Satan, he comes, he twists, he distorts God's words, he instills these lies. We see it begin to take root in Eve's heart, and then we see that final act of sin in the very next verse. Verse 6 says this, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well, all right? So the lie takes root in Eve's heart, she takes the fruit, she eats the fruit, she shares it with Adam, all right? Now, well, Eve often gives a really, gets a really bad rap here, all right? There's a lot of, there can be a tendency inside of us, say, well, this is all just Eve's fault, right? Like, she couldn't stand up to Satan, she gives in, she gives in to the desires of her heart, and it's all Eve's fault that we're here in this place, this brokenness that we experience. But Adam is equal in his blame here. And his actual disobedience is, I, in my opinion, this is me, this is not the Bible. Like Paul says, this is my, yeah, whatever. Um, I think his is far more pathetic than Eve's. It's far more pathetic Eve is actually deceived and enticed by Satan. Satan speaks to her heart. He gives these visions and these dreams of what life could be apart from God. And so she wrestles with this in conversation. What does Adam do? Adam just gives in to peer pressure. He knows God's command and he knows the consequence of disobedience. This is articulated to him very clearly in Genesis chapter 2. There's no dialogue between Adam and, the, and Satan or the serpent. Here, Eve just hands him the fruit and he willingly takes it and he eats it. Pathetic. <laughs> now here's the temptation, all right? As we're looking at the act of sin here, the author gives us far more attention to the dialogue that happens between Eve and the serpent than that he does the actual event of the sin itself. And so here's what I think the temptation is. I think the temptation is for us to conclude that the act wasn't really that big of a deal. All the thought and attention goes to the actual dialogue, not to the act or the event of sin. And so some people have concluded, well, it's really not that big of a deal then. We just need to know kind of like what goes and takes place in our heart. And then if we can wrestle with that, then like we can kind of swoop everything else under the rug. But the focus of the dialogue over the act is not to minimize the act, but to amplify the heart. 
that we see how sin and temptation entice our heart, how we are prone towards and and that have proclivity towards sin in our life because we see through the rest of the Bible that the act of sin here changes everything. Here's how Romans 5.12 states it. It's very clear. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people. All people. The word there, all, means like every person that has stepped foot on the face of the earth because all have sinned. When Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are infected with the disease of sin. And this disease of sin has been passed down to all of us. Every single person that has a pulse in this room has acquired this disease of sin. It's what theologians have labeled original sin, all right? Original sin is our human reality that we are all born with a propensity towards sin. We all have a tendency in our hearts towards sin. Now, here's what this doesn't mean, all right? It does not mean that we are all as evil as we possibly could be, that all that we do is outright evil. That's not what original sin means. It does mean that we are all prone to find our identity and fulfillment apart from God. That's exactly what you see happen here with Eve, all right? So Tim Keller, my best friend, um, he says this, um, that sin is more commonly expressed in the Bible in taking good things and making them ultimate things. That's the natural tendency of our heart. So there can be a proclivity that where we see the worst expression of it would be the Murrah building, but oftentimes it expresses itself more in taking good things and then placing them as the ultimate thing in your life. And Keller gives two incredible movies as illustrations here. And so the first one is Rocky Balboa, all right? And so if you can remember the scene, Rocky is with his girlfriend at the time, Adrian. And he's just torn up about this pursuit of boxing. And she asks him, why is it so important for you to go the distance in boxing? And Rocky's reply is this, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Finding ultimate worth, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate fulfillment, and success, not relationship with God. Second one, chariots of fire. Main character, one of the main characters, explains why he worked so hard to run the 100 meter in the Olympics. And here's what he says. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. If I don't do this, then what is life for? Is essentially what he's saying. Now, look, again, we all do this. Every single one of us does this. For some of us, it's our physical appearance. So we'll kill ourselves in order for us to be able to look at ourselves in the mirror and finally give ourselves the okay. Or maybe it's even someone's voice in your life that whenever they look at your body, you need their acceptance. And if you finally get the yes or you get the approval, then you believe that life is going to be fulfilled. You're going to find ultimate satisfaction in this world. For some of us, is that we find our significant other, that if we do find our spouse, that will ultimately and finally be happy as if that's the climax of all of life. For some of us, it's that we get into the friend group and that we finally have a place that we can belong, 
that will feel complete if we're accepted by a certain group of people that look at us, that think we are like them, and that we can walk hand in hand throughout this life together. Some of us, it's the next promotion because we need people to take us seriously. For some of us, it's money in the bank because we'll finally feel safe and secure in this life if we finally just have this certain dollar amount that's gonna get us through. We won't have to worry about ends being met, but we can live freely in this life if we just have the right amount in the bank. I mean, you can fill in the blank for yourself. You can keep going here. All this is doing is taking good things and elevating, elevating them to ultimate things because we believe that will, it will satisfy and fulfill us. All opposing against God. And so look, although the attention is given to the dialogue, the sin in the garden is no small matter. It's changed everything about this life and this world for us. The, Genesis, the shalom of Genesis 1 and 2 is forever gone. The whole inner workings about how we are hardwired to work, that we find our ultimate worth, purpose, significance, fulfillment in a relationship with God, we've opposed that, we've gone to find it in other things, and we've lost everything. And Adam and Eve's story, like I said at the very beginning, is our story. Because look, here's the reality, none of us would have fared any better. None of us would have done any better. You and I are not stronger. We're not, okay? The reality is that in the same shoes of Adam and Eve, we too would fall. So we can't look at them and think like, man, these are just two really old people that are so far off that I don't even know how it relates to my life. It's your story. Adam and Eve's story is your story. You do the same things that Adam and Eve did. You try to find fulfillment and significance and worth in so many other things. You do not go to God for those things. You've inherited that from Adam and Eve and themselves, and the result is catastrophic, which we see in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. This is a great reversal of Genesis 1 and 2. You see nakedness here at the end of chapter 2. It's viewed positively. Here in Genesis chapter 3, it's now viewed negatively. At the end of chapter 2, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Meaning that there was security and intimacy in the relationship. But now it's used after their eyes are opened that there's now mistrust and shame. The word that they use here for nakedness, the author, that the word that they use is that you've unmasked somebody. And they finally see how susceptible they are to threat and danger in this life. The sowed fig leaves signal spiritual death and separation. Here's what a commentator that I read said. Their spiritual death is revealed by their alienation from one another, symbolized by sowing fig leaves together for barriers between one another. Look, this is devastating. 
That's not how the world was intended to be. The picture that we, the way that we imagined Genesis 1 and 2 together at the very beginning, man, beauty and splendor, stunning relationships, just a home that we've longed to get back to ever since, and it's all been lost. And ever since, man, we've been trying to figure out, like, what does it look like to get back there? You know? You feel it. You feel it in your soul. You do. Like, there's this deep longing and deep desire to get back. Now, look, this is all really heavy. <laughs> I understand that. This room, I could drop a pin and you could, everybody could hear it, all right? It feels heavy and weighty. The reality of Genesis 3 and I'm not trying to be cold-hearted here, but I think this is what the author's intent is, is that he wants us to set with the reality of our story. That what we have done, finding significance, worth, value, apart from God himself, believing the lies, this is the state that it's got us. And it begs the question, what are we to do? What do we do? How do we deal with the problem that we've created? You see, Adam and Eve's response that we see in the very next verse, chapter 8, or verse 8, is that they run and hide. God comes in for the normal rhythm that they do, going for all their evening walk. Adam and Eve, they've committed the sin. It's taken root in their life. They hear God coming and they run and hide. And this is how we respond too. Whenever you sin, the consequence is isolation. We run and hide. All right, so like, here's a silly example, okay? Well, it's kind of silly. I kind of hurt this guy, but um, but you can laugh at that, hopefully. Um, So, a few Christmases ago, um, we were doing a staff Christmas party, and uh, there's an intern, and he's, he's truly a, a, an incredible man, um, but he had this tendency of leaving our staff meetings, like, right as they were done, all right? So, like, we finish, like, we pray, and it's like, boom, he's out the door, all right? And so, um, he does this at our staff party, too, <laughs> okay? So, it's like, the check is paid, boom, his family's gone, and so... I'm trying to make light of the situation and I uh, impersonate him in front of the whole entire staff. Like, I'm Greg and I'm getting up and I'm leaving and I do the whole thing. I run around the corner and there's Greg. I'm pit in my stomach, right? Like, he heard the whole thing. He experienced it. I, like, die inside, all right? I go home. Here's my response. I can probably avoid him, you know? Like, sure, his office is only like 10 feet away from mine, but if I get up early enough and I get into the office and I close my door, and then he leaves pretty quick, so if I, if I just stick around a bit longer, then like he'll be gone, and like I can just avoid him, right? That's our tendency. Whether, whether it's in your home, with your marriage, like in ways that you kind of build up barriers in your life and you block each other off, 
relationships that you've been hurt or wounded, whatever it may be, this is our tendency. When we sin, our desires is go and run and hide. But I think there's, what you see in scripture is an actual different way that we can respond to this that actually brings hope and life. It brings reconciliation, all right? So here's the two things. This is our application for the evening. The first one is this, that you actually own your sin. You own your sin. We have this tendency to try to shift blame when we sin. I mean, you see it with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 later. Eve blames Adam. Adam blames Eve. Like, it's not my fault. It's their fault. Um, we also have a tendency to try to shift the blame from ourselves to God as well. Okay? Here's what it can look like. If God's really in control of all things, then how could he let this happen? Right? You felt this before? Like, this is a voice that I, I'm speaking from my own life here. Like, I'm not saying, like, just somewhere far off. Like, I'm speaking from my own soul right here. If God is in control of all things, then how could he let this happen? Right? It's God's fault. He let the serpent in. He let this whole thing happen. He knew that we were weak. But here's the thing. That's, that shows no remorse for your sin. That you're just trying to shift the blame, say it's somebody else's fault because you don't want to deal with the responsibility and the reality of the consequences of your sin. What we have to do is we actually need to own our own sin. We need to mourn it and accept responsibility for it. Here's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, look, without regret. But worldly grief produces death. See, godly grief owns and accepts your responsibility for your sin. The opposite of that is worldly sorrow that's just sad that they got caught. So if we want to really deal with our sin problem, it starts with taking responsibility and owning it and having a broken heart over it. I think there's a great example of this. G.K. Chesterton, he's this really old English Brit dude from the early 1900s. Um, and it said that in the early 1900s, the Times of London sent out an inquiry to a number of well-known authors and asking them to write an article in response to this question that they posed to them, what's wrong with the world? So G.K. Chesterton wrote back a simple but yet very direct response to this question, and here it is on your screen. Dear sir, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That should be our response. We look at our sin in the mirror, which we see in Scripture. It gives it to us very point blank. We look at it, and it doesn't, we don't shift blame to someone else. We don't shift blame on God, but we take full ownership for our sin. We're broken over our sin, and we join G.K. Chesterton, as we look at our world, as we look at what we lost, and we ask the question, what's wrong with this world? We look at ourselves and we say, I'm the problem. It's my sin. It's my shame. It's my brokenness. But thanks be to God, we don't stop there, okay? We own our sin. We take responsibility for our sin. But there's a second step, 
and it's that you confess your sin. All right, so confession in the Bible is this combination of two words that means this, that openly and out loud you admit to and agree about the nastiness of your sin. That it's not, you don't stop by just owning your sin, but you outwardly through your mouth to another person and to God most importantly, you agree with the nastiness of your sin and you confess it to him. Now, here's the reality. This is the gift of repentance. All right? Our propensity is we want to run and hide when we sin. The gift of the gospel is that when we repent and we confess that you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. Look, here's the reality. Here's the truth about you. God knows everything about you. Psalm 139 puts it so perfectly. He says, you have, this is David himself speaking about his own life. He says, you have searched me and you know me, God. He says this, you know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know when I move, you are aware. Before a word is on my tongue, you know about it. David's saying, you know everything about me. The worst parts of me, you know. The things that I don't even feel the full weight of, you know about it. And so I don't have to run and hide. I don't have to follow the example of Adam and Eve, but I can actually step in and I can proclaim and agree about the nastiness, the wickedness of my sin. I can confess it to you. And then look, the promise of this is that confession leads to forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, look, this is your hope. This is your hope. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, wash you, fully remove. As far as the east from the west, your sins are cleansed and they're gone. This is the hope of confession. Then when we proclaim our sins, we agree with it that God forgives you. Now, what is really, what all this rides on is who the he is here. And the he here is Christ. It's the one that we see in the very first verse of Genesis chapter 1. He's the second person of the Trinity. Colossians 1 tells us that he's the creator and sustainer of this world. He's the sinless and perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. The consequence of your sin is death. Well, death in death, Jesus swallowed up our death. He came, he lived perfectly on your, on your behalf. He died perfectly for you. And the resurrection took out the, the teeth of the grave in our own life. Death cannot stick to you anymore because of what Jesus has done for you. And so whenever you come and you confess your sin, you have this Jesus who is faithful. He's trustworthy. None of us can say that about ourselves. The naked and unashamed, we cannot claim for ourselves. But Jesus is trustworthy. He's faithful. And then he's righteous. He's the only one that can hold up this place that can offer forgiveness to you all because of what he's done for you. And look, here's the beauty of this. 
Sometimes we read into the scriptures and we think, man, this is just God's job. He's obligated to do this. No, he delights in doing this for you. He loves doing this for you. You're the one that he's lost and he's been pursuing since Genesis chapter 3. He gave all that heaven could provide in sending Jesus so he could get you back. And he's done it all for you. Because he deeply, deeply loves you. There's this story in this book by Brennan Manning, Abba's father. And what he does is he recounts this story about this priest that goes over to visit his uncle in Ireland. And as he goes over, he, his uncle celebrating his 80th birthday. And so one, that morning, they wake up, they clothe themselves in just silence. There's no words between them. They wake up, they get ready, they wake up early so they can go watch the sunset. And as the sun comes over the hills, and Ireland's just beautiful. I mean, if you, I've never been there seen pictures, looks amazing, right? So I just imagine the sun coming up over those hills as the ocean and just the beautiful green grass everywhere. And all of a sudden, this 80-year-old uncle takes off skipping. And so this priest looks over to his uncle and says, uncle, you seem really happy. And his uncle looks back, and this is just very Irish. I am, lad, Right? Want to tell me why? Yes, you see, this is, again, very Irish. Me Abba is very fond of me. And so he is of you. He's willing to abandon the 99 to come after you. He's done that in Jesus himself. He's done everything for you. All to invite you back into himself reconciled relationship. You can find your worth and significance in him again. The brokenness and the shame that you've experienced in this life, he, he begins, you are fully justified, which means he accepts you because Christ has given you everything that he's accomplished for you. But then even in this life, you get to begin to experience the beauty of that relationship here and now. Now look, there's two options here. There's two options. No others. And this, there's this guy, William Arnott, who puts it, I think, so beautifully and succinctly. He says this. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man. A person who's been redeemed and a person who's unredeemed. is not that the one has sins and the other has none. But that the one takes part with his cherished takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Those are two options. What are you going to choose? You have a God who's loved you and his response to you when you own your sin and you confess your sin is that he gladly delights, picks you up in his arms, embraces you back in relationship again. And the hope of Genesis 1 and 2 is that when he comes back again, we get to experience something even better. And it can never be broken. 
No more tears. No more pain. No more sin. But eternity with Christ Jesus. Which will you choose? Let's pray.